Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I went to see a glaucoma specialist, a Dr. Sugar. In fact, I was blind and said, Arthur, let's get out of here. I can't take it anymore. In any event, he walked away, that is Arthur. I walked into the subway system in the middle of a rush hour crowd. It was a very, very bloody trip. I got down to the cavernous hole in the bottom and transferred to the Crosstown shuttle after a series of events that were quite harrowing. I was entombed in a coffin and I felt I would never, ever get out. And I continued to persist. And as I walked through the massive gates of Columbia on Broadway in 116th, a man bumped into me and said, oops, excuse me, sir. Of course, it was Arthur. He had followed me the entire way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sandy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srinivan, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about uh, you and your new book, Hello Darkness, my old friend, through your book, Publicist. And as I got to reading the book, as I was just saying uh, before we hit record here, I was just stunned by the sheer diversity of your life experiences and all the things that you've done. But before we get into all of that, um, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life? That's a more complicated question than it may appear because there were four people, two of whom were my parents, uh, who were pillars of the foundation which I grew up on. And those four people were my father, Albert, who escaped Europe in 1939 and arrived in Buffalo, New York. He was a tailor and a, a good one, too. And I have many memories of him in the book I recount, one that was terrifying, but it showed the depth of his caring for me. I had wandered out onto the street, and he caught me and gave me a spanking I can still feel. Um, But more than that were the sweet memories. He would sit me down in a chair and suspend a stick of gum above my head and say that it dropped from heaven as he dropped it. 
And those sweet memories persisted for a few years, very few. Uh, they vanished all too soon. He died when I was five. Uh, his, his death really devastated me. He left my mother with $54 and three children to raise under the age of five. And how she did it, I do, do not know, nor will I ever know. Um, she was quite an extraordinary woman, reserved, quiet, thoughtful, deliberate, and most of all, tough on the outside, but very, very sweet on the inside. She developed the ability to deal with grimness, and there was much of that to be in our future together, which I can talk about later. Yeah. She, a few years later, married my father's brother, Carl. Uh, he was a junk dealer in Buffalo, New York. Very, very difficult business. He had come over from Germany in the mid-30s and spent a great deal of his money bringing over the rest of his family who had survived. Uh, I look at it this way that while I overcame, he endured, which to me is a much greater feat. He was made of iron because he had to be. My grandmother, Pauline, was born in Poland, escaped to London, where she operated a candy store and ultimately came to Buffalo, New York again, where she settled. And the greatest blessing of all was that she lived with us until the time I had to go to college. She died in 1958. Um, she was babysitting one evening and a broken spring from a cradle burst into her eye, and it required a prosthetic. Uh, that actually also happened to my father, Carl. A disgruntled employee hurled a brick at him, brick at him catching him in the eye, and he too needed a prosthetic. From my perspective, those two events and my own circumstance uh, created an obscene irony. But not to dwell on that, talking more about my grandmother, she, well, I would say that being close to her was, was almost too much because you felt you weren't worthy of it. When she hugged you, you felt anointed, and you left feeling stronger and more powerful. Her death took something sacred from me, but left something sacred behind, too. She summarized what I learned from all four of these extraordinary people. First, tell the truth. 
second, treat others the way you want to be treated yourself. Third, give to others even when you yourself have very little to give. Fourth, have compassion. And not compassion, uh, the Dalai Lama calls some views of that sloppy sentimentalism. This is real compassion for every human being you encounter, and indeed for all of humanity. And finally, she said, be a mensch. That's a Yiddish word. It's ineffable. Something difficult for me to translate. Best I can do is to say, be a decent, upright human being. Live your life according to the rules and guidelines that you learn from all of us. And that will have been a complete and wonderful life. Hmm. That's what I took away from these four people. You were five years old when your dad died. And, you know, if I, if, at the age of five, most of us aren't really capable of emotionally processing some event as tragic as losing a parent. And I wonder how your perspective and your view on that experience changed with age. I recall with great clarity the day I went with my mother to bury my father. So the memories remained very, very clear as they were dropping his coffin onto the ground. I wanted to jump in and save him to get him out of the coffin, go home, shower, and take me to the beach and live a decent life. So on the one hand, I was crushed. On the other, in a way that I perhaps find difficult to talk about, I felt a sense of freedom that I had no more restraints, no one to give me rules and regulations of the road. And that's when I became responsible for trying to take care of my mother and, at the time, two siblings. And I think that freedom which I experienced left me alone to define how I would live my life according to my own terms. So I know from having read your book that you're a parent, I wonder how did losing your father at an early age influence the kind of parent that you've been to your own children? Well, I learned not to work to a point where you exclude the children from your life. For example, my father could never have dinner with us. My mother and I had to take dinner to his tailor shop every night. Uh, I made a point of every single night of my life, unless I was out of town, to have dinner with Sue, my wife, and my three children. And then we would make a point of taking the month of August off to go to the beach 
just the family to relax and enjoy each other and learn from each other. Those are things my father couldn't even imagine. So let's sort of fast forward um, to basically getting to college, like, you know, I mean, just to give people some backdrop uh, before we get into sort of the deeper parts of, of, you know, what you've ended up doing with your life and your career. What happened when you got to college? Because I know the story from having read the book. <laughs> uh, the sweetest of memories. I got to college in September 1958, Columbia University in the city of New York. And I met two young people. One was a guy named Arthur Garfunkel, and another was a guy named Jerry Spire. Suffice to say, we are still best friends after all this time. What was most significant, however, Arthur and I would take classes together, French, humanities, and some others. But after a humanities class one day, we walked outside. It was about, I guess, Amsterdam and 117th, maybe. Uh, and he called me over to the curb and said, Sanford, look at that patch of grass. Look how light illuminates the beauty and colors of its, and the complexities of its colors. And I stood still caught unawares and it dawned on me that I had not been looking at the beauty of the world. In Buffalo, I would never consider spending time looking at the beauty of grass or trees or anything else. I just lived a wonderful life, at least the second half of that life. And so that changed my view of life forever to this very day. That was the significance of that early period of my college life. Now, why do you think more people aren't like that? Most of us are going through life basically, you know, at light speed. We don't stop to, you know, notice anything. Well, you know, he... He, he's an artist, always has been, even before he became Art Garfunkel. And there are special people who have particular sensibilities, and his was a poet's life, an artist's life. And I was sucked into that orbit instantly, never left. I can't tell you why he is what he is, but I, I don't want to even dwell on that question. He just is. And that's all that counts to me. So one other thing I wonder is you mentioned that you guys are still best friends to this day. I mean, that's a, a friend that's sustained, you know, what, 40 plus years. What is it that enables a friendship that starts that early in your life to last that long? Because I just interviewed Lydia Denworth about her new book, Friendship. And you know, for so many of us, 
our friendships change inevitably as we move, as we we go on into adult life. And you guys clearly have had, you know, all these different things happen in your life. You know, our Garfunkel, I'm assuming, has had a pretty busy life. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, well, the we had a very, very close relationship. We would often speak into the wee hours of the morning about everything from philosophy to architecture to history to what is the meaning of life. Pretty sophomoric question. And what really solidified it was, turns out to have been a tragedy in my own life and in a way for him as well. I, uh, I went blind in my junior year. I was pitching in a baseball game back in Buffalo summer after my sophomore year, and things suddenly became unhinged. My eyes became cloudy and steamy, and when I almost hit the next batter, I stumbled to the sidelines and dropped to the ground. And the next several months were sadly filled with visits to ophthalmologists, one of whom poisoned my eyes by giving me topical steroids and misdiagnosing my disease. It was not an allergic conjunctivitis. It actually turned out to be glaucoma. And 1961 February, I went to see a glaucoma specialist, a Dr. Sugar. And when I came into his office, because he was the last chance I had to maintain my vision. And he looked at me after he examined me and said, well, son, you're going to be blind tomorrow. And I thought tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. What broke my heart, of course, is that my mother who had herself had a difficult life, had to hear those words. And the next day, he operated on me, and in fact, I was blind and still am. I could talk a lot about that particular week, which was the uh, most difficult week of my life. I then went home with my mother back to Buffalo to recover. At that time, I was a dropout. My father's business had, was on the verge of bankruptcy. I had no money, no ability even to pay the doctor for the surgery, no eyes, no future. And I had a girlfriend then. Her name was Sue. And I had fallen in love with her in sixth grade, but it took a number of years for me to get up enough courage to ask her to go out on a date, which I did in high school. And I was convinced that she would leave me. And actually, I felt quite alone, even though there were plenty of people around. And I determined that I could not go back to Columbia University. I, my life was, in effect, from my perspective, over. And 
despair set in. And I did not want to see anybody, certainly nobody from my past life. But Arthur insisted on flying up to Buffalo. And he came and said, let's take a walk. And we walked down my street, Saranac Avenue, very lovely street. And he said, Sanford, you're going to come back to Columbia with me, aren't you? I said, are you crazy? There's no conceivable way I can go back. Look at me. I have no eyes. I have no ability to even move a few feet without being frightened. He said, no, no, Sanford, you've got to change your mind. You've got to come back with me. And he uh, told me many stories about the classics that we had been reading, about heroism and tragedy and greatness. And as he was talking, I was wondering why he didn't understand that I was standing next to him dying. But after about an hour, we came to a opening in the mighty oak trees of Buffalo. And the, actually, they were elm trees, I apologize. And he looked at me and said, I, I don't think you get it. I said, get what? He said that I need you there because before we roomed together, we had made a solemn pact to be there for each other in times of crises. He said, that pact does now come into play. I need you to come back. You need to come back for yourself as well. But essentially, I need you there, and you must fulfill our solemn covenant. And I put my arms on his shoulders, and I said, I get it. But they were noncommittal words. But certainly, I now have to open my mind to the possibility of going back. I talked with Sue, and... I decided I would make the return to the university. When I got back, Arthur, true to his word, stayed with me, walked everywhere with me, bandaged my shins when they were bleeding, fixed my tape recorder, read to me a great deal, most critically when other People who were supposed to read to me didn't show up. And then one day, he and I were going to see my social worker, who was trying to tell me that I have to accept the fact that I was blind. And I was having none of it. And we went through session after session, and finally I stomped out and said, Arthur, let's get out of here. I can't take it anymore. We got to Midtown, and it was 3.30 in the afternoon. And he said, oh, by the way, 
he was an architecture student, and he had a drawing due the next morning of the Seagram building. And he wanted me to come with him, and then he would take me back to the dormitory. I said, I don't think you understand. I have a reader coming at four. I need to be back, otherwise I will be doomed. That reader was a friend named Michael Mukasey, who is still my dear friend and working closely with me on and blindness. In any event, he walked away, that is Arthur. I walked into the subway system in the middle of a rush hour crowd, and without boring you with all the details, it was a very, very bloody trip. And I got down to the cavernous hole in the bottom and transferred to the Crosstown shuttle after a series of events that were quite harrowing. I was entombed in a coffin and I felt I would never, ever get out. And I continued to persist and finally made my way back, bloodied, to campus. And as I walked through the massive gates of Columbia on Broadway and 116th, a man bumped into me and said, oops, excuse me, sir. Of course, it was Arthur. He had followed me the entire way. That was the defining moment in my life because I felt that if I could make it through the New York City subway system blind, that I could do anything I chose to do. Wow. That, a long way of answering your question, that solidified (laughs) our friendship forever. Wow. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So you talk about the friendship with Arthur, which um, that was beautiful. One thing I wonder, um, in the book, you say to relate these moments of decline is to describe torture. Many of the incidents took place in the presence of my family when my younger siblings inadvertently witnessed being cut open as a person. It was embarrassing, but worse, there was no way to hide it or make it appear less brutal than it was, extremely brutal. And you alluded to Sue, who I know, uh, you know, from having read the book as your wife. What I wondered is how, outside of Arthur, did your other relationships start to change as a byproduct of, of being blind? Well, I think I already mentioned Sue, who, to whom I dedicated the book, as you know from reading it, uh, for Sue, the one who was always there. And in many respects, if not all, she's been the center of gravity of my life for virtually my entire life. Our love was tested when she stayed in Buffalo and I went off to Columbia. But what has amazed me all these years is the fact that she has stayed with me through the most difficult series of years I could imagine. And I, I don't love her just because she stuck with me and was my support. I just love her. That's, that's an affidavit from my heart. And you might say, or someone cynical would say, well, what's that self-serving warrant worth? To me, everything. You know, if the continuous love of a man for a woman is inevitable, and I believe it is, then it is no less real 
than the experience of music or art, the love of your kids, or many untranslatable joys of human life. So she is still with me. That's all that matters. So, Sandy, people leave each other in far less difficult circumstances. Why do you think that is? Why I have an answer to a lot of things that are summed up in one word, and that's love. Indefinable, deep, unrestrained, relentless love. And you don't live for half a century or more with people unless you have that. True for my friend Jerry Spire as well, who is with me from the, in fact, gave a speech at Columbia Business School in 2008 describing my subway odyssey. And I learned a lot about what he felt toward me and listening to that speech, and it touched me very deeply. So I cannot not mention my siblings, Joel, Ruth, and Brenda, who saw the worst of it, as I, as you said before. And they, and we, we have stuck together to this very moment. My sister Ruth is unfortunately extremely ill, and we've banded together to try and help save her. So without that, without conditions to the love, without the acceptance of the, well, let's put it this way, each of those people I've mentioned and more, just gave me a wider field of grace. And as Robert Frost said, that made all the difference. So one of the things you say in the book is, for me, memory is not casual daydreaming. It's been a life-sustaining activity. The process of thinking about my good moments and bad moments, my good luck and bad luck functions for me, something like an old-fashioned carpenter spirit level. And what I wondered from that was how are the memories you have of your life different from when you can see, which you clearly have actual visual images of, versus the ones that you have of your life after you've gone blind, in which you, I think, have to construct images, as you allude to later in the book? Yes. Well, as a sighted person, I feel extremely fortunate that I had sight for 19 years of my life. And fortunately, I have a pretty good memory. And so, for example, when I got to Columbia, I crossed onto College Walk, one of the most exciting days in my life, and I realized that I was now going to be let into the secrets, treasured secrets of Western civilization. And so it was. And 
after class each day, I would visit a different museum. I'd go to the Frequency Rembrandt self-portrait, or I'd go to the Guggenheim. I wound up at the Guggenheim two weeks after it opened and saw the Mondrians. I went to the Metropolitan Museum and saw the Vermeers, and I have vivid images of all the art that I saw at the time. And without that and all the other sites that I was blessed with for those 19 years, I think my life as a blind person would have emerged quite differently. And But what did happen, uh, and what did happen was that I learned, you know, the, the, this great Swiss poet Hermann Hesse once said, God does not give us despair to kill us. He gives it in order to awaken us to a new life. And blindness awakened me to a new life because I live much of that life in my own head. A mind where thoughts proliferate undisturbed by the constant flow of visual images. As I said in the book, as you know, blind people cannot see horizons. So there are no horizons to deal with, no limits. Yeah. My world is without limits. There is my mind, and beyond that, the entire universe. A blessing, indeed. So what I wonder, you have this moment with Art Garfunkel where he bumps into you, you know, after following you to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. You decide then and there that you know, anything is possible with your life. And I, I, I very distinctly remember the section about New Horizons or no, seeing New Horizons because it was in my notes and I wanted to ask you about it and you kind of beat me to it. Um, Sorry, I apologize. No worries. But the thing is that people who can see, see limitation, even though by all accounts, by, by most accounts, if you actually look at it just sort of logically, you have a greater limitation than somebody who has sight. And yet what you've done with your life is extraordinary in comparison to a person who doesn't have anywhere near the challenges you do. Why? David Rockefeller, my mentor and friend, lifelong mentor and friend, once asked me when we were having lunch a few years ago, which was quite a shocking question. In the middle of lunch, he turned to me and he said, Sandy, how did you do it? And I was taken aback. I, I, it must have been 20 or 30 seconds before I responded. And I didn't know what to say because it's an impossible question to answer. I said, I chose life. That's how you do it. Each of us is given choices. And you can choose to be happy or not happy. And money does not is not necessarily relevant. I never wanted to be in business. I never had any money until I started in business. And yet, high school, for example, for the most glorious 
years of my life. Then after I became blind, there was glory in a different way. The, the ideas. I mean, I do believe that the only two things of real value in life are people and ideas. And people have saved me, but so have ideas. Let's actually talk about some of the things that you've done with your life, because like I said, I, mean, um, I just was, the list was so long, I was kind of baffled every time I got further and further in the book. I was like, wow, that too? Uh, let's start by talking about uh, your time in the White House. I, and you know, I don't necessarily want to talk specifically about the White House, but I do, it, it's funny, in the last few years, I've had more of an interest in politics, particularly because it just seems like such a shit show lately. Uh, but what I wonder is, you know, me as a citizen, you know, you've basically been around sort of political power brokers. What part of why policy is so difficult to make and why citizens are so upset do you think I misunderstand as somebody who is just a citizen who is not actually there making decisions? Well, I, I think you understand very, very well. In fact, that's obvious because you're asking the right question. Yeah. Uh, my... White House experience, if that's one of the things you'd like to talk about, yeah. what uh, simply stunning, it changed my entire life. In 1961, I was in a hospital with my eyes newly dead and still bandaged. And then in August of 1966, Five years later, I was standing in the White House next to President Johnson talking to him and then talking to the other cabinet members who he had invited to join the White House fellows as well. That's largely because I believed fervently in people and ideas and most important, people and to quote Bridge Over Troubled Waters, people laid themselves down to help me along. Greatest blessing in my life. But the White House fellow ex fellow's experience was rather unique and literally changed my entire understanding of the world. For example... President Johnson at the time was concerned about the alleged technology gap between Western Europe and the United States. Um, Prime Minister Fanfani of Italy was similarly concerned. President Johnson set up a task force of about a half dozen people, of which I was the junior member. And two things impacted my life because of that one trip, which was to be an ordinary trip of going and visiting with our ministers of technology, with our friends in Western Europe and their ministers of technology and ministers of finance. And instead, two things happened. One of the members of the task force was a guy named Bill Hewlett. He then was running what people considered to be a small company called Hewlett-Packard. And we had become friends in the course of the year because he was a member of the President's Science Advisory Committee, which would meet monthly. And as a White House fellows, I was associated with that committee. 
But what solidified our friendship was we were in Italy, and Bill asked me if I wanted to join Flora and himself to take a drive down the Amalfi Coast. Well, he rented this Volkswagen Beetle, and Flora was sitting in the passenger seat, and I was sitting in the back, and my life was in his hands for the good hour or two we were driving. I've never been driven so fast in my entire life. It was probably the most harrowing experience I ever had. (laughs) We became really good friends. Then we were all in Germany, and there was a gentleman, a minister of technology, I believe his name was Stoltenberg, and he got up and said, you know, we here in Germany... We train unskilled people to operate and maintain the most sophisticated technological weaponry in the world. And I, that sentence hung in the air. He continued to talk, but I didn't hear the rest of what he said. That was just a huge idea. When I went back to Washington, I sat down with Willard Wirtz, who was Secretary of Labor, President Kennedy and Johnson appointed him to that position. And needless to say, as the Secretary of Labor, he was very interested in manpower training. And I came in and told him the story. And then I told the same story to Bill Moyers, who had become a very good friend. And Orville Freeman, the Secretary of Agriculture, Bill Moyers was President Johnson's press secretary and special assistant, but had an even more important position because of his intimate relationship with the president. And then there was a fellow named Jim Goddard, who was head of the FDA, And when I started my first company, which was to follow on Mr. Stoltenberg's idea uh, to build a company that would manufacture general purpose system simulators so that people who were untrained could operate and maintain not only sophisticated technological weaponry, but also to operate and maintain fossil fuel generators, for example, in the commercial sector. So that was one of the many events in my life that gave me a grounding in rail politics, how things work on the international scene. I don't have the time now. I don't suspect to talk about all the other lessons I took away from that one trip, but there were countless other experiences every single day. Yeah. Similarly mind boggling. Well, I guess what what brought up the question for me, like I said, when I, I learned that you were, you're on the council for foreign relations, all I remembered about the council for foreign relations was what I had seen in this Oliver Stone documentary, the untold history of the United States. And what struck me in particular about many of the things that were said in that documentary is how often policy is actually not made in favor of citizens. I, I, I mean, I honestly, to, to this day, and maybe it's only because it was in the White House now, but I don't necessarily feel that's true. I don't feel like the government acts in my interest as a citizen. I feel like they act of, out of self-interest, um, you know, so that people in power benefit, not, you know, people who are not in power. And that's why I had to ask you of all people, because you're connected to so many of these people. Am I wrong to think that? I think 
what you think is important, and if you feel that way, that's uh, that's right. But I would try and ask you to rethink some of that. Uh, it is true that politics today is different from when I grew up with it in the 60s. Uh, I, I dare say you could not say about President Johnson or any of his cabinet members or, or most of the people in his government that he didn't care for the average citizen. This was a man, a, a rural conservative initially, and he tried to do more for average citizens than most people before him by creating Medicare and Medicaid, by trying very hard when he created the Office of Economic well, the, the, the poverty program. Um, and he asked Sarge Schreiber to run that. These are people who are really dedicated and committed to the public welfare. Now, there are always people throughout our history, throughout all of history, that choose to take advantage of the system. Uh, and while it is true that there are people always that are very eager and willing to take advantage of the benefits of our system. I would say for the most part, the people who go to work as civil servants, as employees of our federal government, are good people working for people like you and me. Uh, we sometimes go off track, and uh, it's not my ability to talk about where the country is at now, but we have had difficult times in the past. We are clearly having a difficult time now, particularly because of the coronavirus. But I understand what you're saying. There's a vast swath of America that feels the way you do. And I have to say, to some extent, that is true, that the people often who are in power don't always remember who they're working for. Yeah, I guess, you know, part of why I think about that, you know, particularly in the, in the wake of what's going now, I'm like, okay, Steve Mnuchin's treasury policy doesn't you know, affect him in any way at all. You know, he has no skin in the game, no matter what the policy is. It's like he still has a job and $300 million to wake up to tomorrow morning. Right. So one other thing really struck me about this, um, you know, I know that you've mentioned multiple businesses, which I want to talk about because I know we, we got to talking about my bizarre interest in sports teams, despite being somebody who doesn't watch sports. Um, <laughs> you said that people without sight have a special reverence for trust. I must trust people to lead me in places I've never been. I must trust people to read written materials to me completely inaccurately. I must trust accountants and business partners and there have been betrayals in my life as well as people who make change for me, especially with paper currency and so on. Uh, so numerous questions came from that. Um, how, how do you determine who you can and cannot trust? Like, you know, is there, have you developed an instinct for it over time? Um, and what is that process like when you meet a new person? So for example, let's say you and I meet for the first time in person. 
what's the process of feeling me out like for you to make sure that I'm somebody you can trust? Well, in the old days, we used to be able to shake hands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a, it was an initial good sign. Um, I think it's the demeanor of the person, the content of their speech. The advantage I have is that I don't judge people by their appearances since I don't have the ability to do that. So I rely on largely on speech, the intonations, the uh, substance of what they're saying. One of the reasons I like old technology like voicemail as opposed to email, when you get a voicemail, you can tell a hell of a lot about what the per person is saying and feeling. So the voice is... Well, certainly in my world, become critical. Started becoming critical in my junior year in, in college. So I would say that, in a word, it's the content of what the person is saying, how he says it, and whether his heart or her heart is in what they're saying. And you can tell whether a person is passionate about something, whether from what he says, you feel you can trust that person. I think. I think that's not a, the special province of blind people. Well, let's do this. Let's um, talk uh, a little bit about some of the other businesses that you started. And, and you know, um, I want to definitely give you a chance to talk about ending blindness uh, so that listeners can hear a little bit more about what you've been up to. But how in the world do you get involved with like owning a sports stadium and being a part owner of sports teams? Uh, <laughs> uh, do we have a couple of hours? <laughs> Can you give us the condensed version? <laughs> I'll compress it. Uh, yeah, I had a friend in town here named A. Poland who owned the then Baltimore Bullets, and he wanted to build an arena to house the Bullets, who were then the Baltimore Bullets, and he wanted to move them to Washington. And he discovered that he had to have two franchises as the so-called anchor tenants of a coliseum, and, but he needed to get the coliseum built, and unfortunately, the local banks weren't willing to give him the kind of money he needed. So he asked me if I could help him out. And I called, once again, my mentor, David Rockefeller, and I explained the circumstances, what the finances were. And David <clears throat> loaned the money to Abe and the Capital Center was built. Uh, and that was an opportunity to, to uh, participate for me in... Well, the, the bullets were then moved from Baltimore to Washington, Landover, Maryland, actually. And uh, we decided that we wanted to get a hockey franchise. So Abe and Irene, his wife and I, a couple of others went up to the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal, I guess in 72 or so. And we had to negotiate with the National Hockey League Board of Governors to 
try and get a franchise for Washington. Uh, Jimmy the Greek gave us 700 to 1 odds against our getting it. But fortunately, I had known some of the owners, and so did Abe, and we persuaded them that Washington would be a terrific market for a franchise. And we got the Washington Capitals franchise. Uh, that led to another situation uh, because David had been very kind to do this for Abe and for me. And David called me one day and asked me if I could join him. And he said, given the fact that he and I successfully worked on getting the Capitol Center built, he wondered if I could help him out with a situation he had, which was the Cleveland Coliseum, which uh, since he brought in another major banker to handle part of the line he'd extended to these people in Cleveland, uh, he was didn't want to be embarrassed, and he asked me to make sure that if I went there to help him out, it would not get public. And for the most part, that was true, except for one very clever reporter who discovered the relationship, and he wrote an article in the Akron Beacon Journal with a picture of David and me sitting there talking about whatever we were pictured talking about, and showed the link between us. Uh, fortunately, it was not a major magazine or journal, and so we were able to go in there and with the Cleveland Cavaliers and the new Cleveland Barons hockey team, which we obtained from the National Hockey Board of Governors, uh, we built it so that ultimately it could be sold. Wow. Uh, so I have two final questions for you. Uh, you've gotten to spend your life around you know, people who have status, who have influence, who have power, who have wealth, things that I think many of us you know, deep down kind of say, okay, that's the standard. That's the point of arrival at which I can say I've quote unquote made it. What misperceptions do you think that people have about their lives? Would you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for example, you might look at, for example, an Art Garfunkel or even a day, somebody like a Rockefeller. It's like, oh, these people haven't made. Their lives must be so charmed. Um, you know, they've kind of accomplished these things that many of us aspire to, like fame or wealth or status. What do you think that we think, um, like what, what misperceptions do you think we have about how great their lives are? I think that it sounds crazy, but it's all about, well, let's put it this way. Marcus Aurelius was talking about in his meditations, various vanities we all have, fame confused, fortune hard to come by, soul a spinning top. And he concludes that section of his book by asking this question, what then can escort a person through life? And his answer is philosophy. 
sounds ridiculous, but to me, everything starts with what is your philosophy of life? What is the meaning of life to you as an individual, which you have to craft on your own? And I think the the understanding about life uh, is essential to whether a person, as you say, has it made or not, uh, to recognize that even the bad things in life are good. Because even the bad things are a source of remembrance of flavor of this life. And as you know, life is very precious. Our lives, how we live them, can't get it any place else. And when it's gone, it's gone. And if people who appear to have status and prestige and power and money, I think who don't understand the beauty, magnificent, gargantuan beauty of this planet, then I think they're as poor as people who are blind in a different sense. So I I wouldn't assume that this is a concoction of our materialistic society. He made it. What does that mean? Uh, He made it. Yes, he has the external indicia of success as we define it. But I would like to think that it's all defined in human terms, in the terms that my mother and fathers and grandmother understood and taught me. And that you, as a human being, are, depending on, of course, your philosophy of life and how you live it, are probably luckier than most people who have made it. So it's a a very personal matter, and I don't think that uh, judging people by these external indicators is... uh, is a good way to to uh, view the world. Amazing. Um, well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I guess I would come back to what I said earlier today, that it's all about choosing life. that if you do choose life and pursue it vigorously and fully aware of the extent of the beauty that exists on this globe for each of us to appreciate, I I think that's unmistakable way to proceed. Hmm. I'll tell you something. I visited my daughter, Catherine, in Sarasota 
few months ago. And at sunset, she fortunately lives near the beach, and we walked onto the beach at sunset time. And I was surprised to see hundreds of people dotting the ocean shore, just waiting for the sun to set. Amazing. Uh, well, this has been just riveting and fascinating, as I expected it would be. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your book, and everything else that you're up to? If they want to go to my website, sanfordgreenberg.com, they can find out about the book, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, and, and blindness and other activities that I'm engaged in. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.